If you please remain standing and turn to Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the last book in the Old Testament. So you'll find it right before the introduction of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. Let us read now the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. Here now the reading of God's precious life-giving word. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes underneath the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon this word. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we desire to hear from you today. So often, Lord, your seeming silence confounds us. Speak clearly. Drive your word of truth, your precious message of grace, deep within our very hearts. Lord, that we might be convicted of our sin, comforted by the gospel. And bear the fruit that you have called us to. And that you work within us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So recently I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with Seth at night. And we have been going through the final book, The Last Battle, this last month. And we're actually very close to the end now. We'll finish in the next day or two. I've got to admit, that's a really depressing book. For all those who've read that book before, it's incredibly depressing. I think perhaps the most depressing moment in the book is when all the horses are freed, the talking horses of Narnia. They're freed from their bonds, and they come racing up the hill to aid the small band of followers of Aslan who are left, who are fighting against impossible odds. And these horses are racing to the rescue. And before they can get there, the treacherous dwarfs turn their bows and arrows upon the horses and wipe out the whole lot of them. Like That is one of the most (laughs) depressing, frustrating points in the whole book. You get why Eustace would be crying out with rage at that treachery. For just a fleeting moment, you think the battle will turn. For a fleeting moment, you think that good will triumph. It's one of the hard things. I explained to Seth uh, 
in an effort to try to keep them from getting too scared during certain books and uh, shows and movies. Remember, the good guys always win. But there are times, in a sense, when they don't. And you see that here. You see all the horses go down. Like, what can go worse here? It's all done. But rather, the depressing angle to this book, I think, behind all of this, is all throughout all the episodes of this book, from a donkey pretending to be a lion and everybody being deceived, to the enemy forces of Calamine uh, infiltrating Narnia and taking it over, blow after blow after blow, is the seeming silence of Aslan amidst all this. Where is the lion who has come to the rescue so many times in so many books before? That's really the saddest part. All throughout the book, you keep waiting for that roar, and you don't hear it. The sound of silence. An incredibly depressing sound, if you ask me. You know, I've been, I not only counsel lots of people, I'm counseled by two people right now, and both of them have made a point of calling me on my inability to handle silence recently. <laughs> I always try to fill the silence with the sound. I'm uncomfortable with silence. I think, at, in root in part, it's because I'm even more un- uncomfortable with the apparent silence of God. I struggle to really trust him in those moments of silence. But those moments of silence abound. I think if we're honest, we struggle with silence too. You know, in Malachi's day, there was, in a a sense, a great struggle with silence, was there not? In a sense, they experienced their own charge of the horses, only to see them all fall in battle. In the day of Malachi, which is around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, a faithful, small remnant of exiles returned from faraway lands to settle back in Jerusalem. Uh, Under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, they rebuild the temple. They enact these moral reforms, getting people to try to start living before the face of God again with faithfulness and holiness. But all seemingly for naught. It's just a tiny little remnant that returns. And then they rebuild the temple. And there's a sense in which you can almost say, oh, that's it? It really wasn't that joyous of an occasion. It was a vast letdown. But not only that, you would think, is this going to be the turning point for Israel? Is this going to be the time when, when really everything comes back together? But no. The people start to go wayward again. The moral reforms don't hold. Changing behaviors don't change hearts. The family structure begins to break down. Adultery is rampant. And often alongside adultery, as you see in the Old Testament, infidelity to God is rampant. People are intermarrying with folks from other tribes, those who do not believe in the living God, and are seducing the worshiping their gods. And all of a sudden, this brief fleeting moment of hope, in a sense, is dashed upon the rocks. It looks like the final charge of the horses. Where is God in all this? For years, they've lived in exile. Where was God? Why did he seem so silent? Why does he seem so silent now? And guess what? In a sense, it's about to get worse for them. If Malachi was written somewhere in the middle of the 5th century B.C., the middle of the 400s B.C., it was not until, as you guys know, about 450, 500 years later, better part of half a millennium before Christ would come. 
That's why this period of time really fascinates me. It's like the silence between the Testaments. The great collective inhale that has to be held for about 500 years before Christ comes. They would have had to embrace God's silence and walk before him in that seeming silence. But we know that silence too. Do we not? We too suffer breakdown. The breakdown of our relationships and our families. We expected these bonds to hold, but more and more, both inside the church and outside of the church, they are not. Love is feeling us left and right. The things, the places where we thought we were safe, the things we thought we could count on, are falling apart one after the other within our society, within the church, within our own households. We're watching more and more people drift into apostasy, leaving behind the God of their youth within society at large, but including within the church, within our own households. It feels like a lot of charges and a lot of people falling in battle and seemingly to no avail. I don't know about you, do you ever struggle with cynicism? Where is God and why is he silent? Think about this in your own heart. We often have right answers. The answers we know, especially in our denomination, we know lots of right answers. And yet there are also the answers we feel. There's a difference between the things we assent to and agree with and the things we actually trust and believe on a day-to-day basis. We all know the right answers regarding God's providence. It's holy, wise, and powerful, governing his creatures and their actions. We know the right answers regarding how God reveals himself. General revelation, special revelation. By the word of his power, he speaks. And yet, do we feel the power of these truths? I would argue that all of us, to some degree or another, struggle with God's seeming silence. I know because I do. And that's why I believe like a, a passage like this is so helpful for us. Look at where Malachi stands. He, in a sense, is this final, one of these final Old Testament prosecutors of the covenant, saying, you guys have failed. God said if you do not keep your end of the bargain, you're getting kicked out of the land. He's one of the people saying, you guys have been unfaithful to God's covenant. You have not kept the law of Moses. This era is done. He's also standing at the cusp of this great era of seeming silence. And so it would be natural and fitting that he would give us several pinpricks of hope, of light, Things that would sustain people through silent times and silent eras. That's what he does in our passage. Dealing with the silence of that time, preparing for the silence to come, he begins for behold. In other words, stop. Stop talking. Stop looking around. Pay attention. The day is coming. And throughout this The first part of this passage, he uses this phrase, this coming day, not to the day of the Lord, but what you normally expect, this coming day, to impress upon them and you the urgency of preparing for this day. The fact that this day is looming as if it is tomorrow, as if it is an hour from now. The day is coming. 
And then we're given an, given an image. This idea of burning like an oven, it radiates from somewhere. The image that you're really given here in two different ways is that of a rising sun. You see this phrase in particular in uh, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise. But really the sun is rising in two different ways. You could say in verse 1, the day is coming, the sun is rising, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. It's a picture of the earth being scorched by the sun's rays and its inhabitants with it. The sun is rising on this coming day. It's almost like in this dark night, we can already see the glimmering outlines beginning to rise on the horizon. The sun is rising. Don't you see it? And it's rising in judgment, first of all. It is rising in judgment. On the one hand, this is a comfort for us, is it not? All the justices, all the heinous things done in this world, the oppression, the acts of clear evil, these things will be punished. The blood of Abel will be avenged. That's a comfort. Brokenness itself will be broken. Wrongs will be righted. And yet we recognize that this day of judgment awaits a wicked and rebellious race, the race of mankind. For all have sinned and fall short of of the glory of God. This day is also a little bit terrifying. Because we see clearly in this image, that's why I love that Malachi doesn't just use clear speech. He's not just writing a newspaper report. He's using imagery. This terrifying imagery of the consequences of our sin, of the judgment and wrath that comes upon sin. That day is coming. We see the outlines of the sun already on the horizon. It's terrifying. In part because you get a foretaste of this imagery and the judgment of Old Testament Israel. Isaiah uses similar imagery in Isaiah chapter 6. He tells Isaiah to go and tell the people that God is going to continue to burn down, in a sense, piece by piece, Israel to the very roots, until all that's left is a stump. In a sense, they would experience that scorching. They would experience a foretaste of that final judgment as they were exiled from the promised land of God into the nations at large. This is what sin deserves. Not relationship with God in the promised land of Canaan or the promised land that awaits us in glory. Sin merits exile, judgment, the burning away of mankind. And yet, this imagery of a sun rising on this coming day also conveys something very, very different. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing and its wings. I remember in some of Jay Gresson Machen's writings, the founder of our denomination, 
This is one of the phrases you see in quite a few of his writings and his sermons. I think it was a very meaningful one to him, which makes sense back in that day when the church was seemingly just getting theologically massacred and denomination after denomination was being taken over. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. There's parallel imagery here. There's a burning oven. There's wings, or I think more correctly, rays of healing. Burning oven, healing rays. A burning oven that results in death, healing rays that result in life. That same sun of judgment that appears in the horizon to do away with sin in this world once and for all, this is also a sun of righteousness that will be like a refining fire, to use the language of Malachi 3, for God's people. The fire that consumes is for God's people, the fire that refines. And instead of it resulting in death, it results in life. And what a wonderful image of life here that we have. Shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. How many of you who once walked in unbelief and now know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior remember what that feeling was like? That feeling of, in a sense, having your dead, shackled heart awakened, given new life, unchained, and all of a sudden, you know the living God, your heart burns within you, and you are free to serve him. That feeling of new life, of new freedom. Like the cattle escaping the stall on that new day. And for those of you who grew up in the faith, for those of you who have now embraced Jesus as your own Lord and Savior, who have been renewed in the joy of that love, as David would say, the joy of that salvation. What did that feel like? A bit like a calf leaping from the stall. The sun of righteousness rises with healing in its race. And that healing gives new life. With judgment comes salvation. And truly, we would see that at work, coming out of Malachi's day and also in our own. For even as God was condemning Old Testament Israel, even as the case was being prosecuted against them, even as the door was being closed upon that era of human history, by condemning, in a sense, by God condemning his son Israel, again to use the language of Malachi, he was opening up the way to the cross, to the new son, the new Adam, the new Israel to the one who would pay those curses and bear that judgment of the sin of God's people who would open for them the path of life. The son of righteousness. Now, of course, you probably all expected this horrible play on words, but the reason why the son of righteousness is meaningful for us as God's people is because we have a son, S-O-N, of righteousness. Think about how Jesus fits within this passage. We're given a hint of it with verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus would later identify the same with John the Baptist, who in a sense functioned as the last Old Testament prophet. If this is maybe the prophet who you could say begins the era of silence between the Testaments, John is the one who says, quiet time's over. 
here comes the king. Behold, again, asking for your attention, I will send you Elijah the prophet, and John the Baptist would indeed be one like Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The era of silence will come to a close. The king will descend. And what would this king represent for us, for those of us struggling in the silence? Oh, one, he would be the beginning of a new day himself. All of a sudden, you have that bright star appear in the sky, and the silence is broken by the great heavenly choir saying, Glory to God and the highest. But the new Adam, the new Israel, the eternal Son of God, would come on this new day in the wake of God's judgment upon Israel. And he himself would be the new Israel. He himself would perfectly remember the law of God's servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that God commanded from Horeb for all Israel. He would come and obey that command through which God's people forfeited the land. And he would earn for us the promised land of glory. Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, would come to put all things under his feet. He, in a sense, would also be the Son of Judgment. 1 Corinthians 15. Sin, Satan, death itself, put under the feet of Jesus Christ and his people. But he had to pay. The one who would save us from our sins would have to bear our judgment. In a sense, the judgment that had come upon Israel here was the judgment that God would now bear in his bodies. The judgment for our sin. He would take our naked, exposed bodies off off of the cross and be lifted up himself. He would turn his face toward Jerusalem and to Calvary so that our hearts might be turned toward him and toward one another in love. All this finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He would turn our hearts because he turned his face toward the cross. He would bear the judgment that he might rise with healing in his race for our salvation. Jesus Christ would do that. And yet, we're not only given this picture of future hope here. It's not simply that the son of righteousness, Jesus Christ, has made this son a refining fire for us rather than a consuming fire. But this son, he who was that holy stump in the land after all was burned away, the chosen offspring, he who was the root of Jesse, he who declared, I am the vine and you are the branches, He's promised that no one will snatch us from his hand. He's assured us that when the pruning begins, we will not be pruned off. Rather, our sin will be pruned. He's assured us that we will not be burned to the ground. Our sin will. 
This future hope in Malachi's day is now a penitence and assured hope written in blood for us. And we now look to that final day when Christ will come again, again waiting in the silence for that, for that day when he will come with both, both judgment and healing in his race. But until that day, what sustains us here in the silence? What sustains us? Verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all, and for all Israel. This verse, in a sense, was condemnation upon God's people in the Old Testament because they failed to do this. This was part of the indictment, part of the condemnation of that people. And yet for us, who now have turned hearts, who now leap out of the stall with the joy of new life and new freedom, we earnestly seek to remember God and his ways. We remember. We remember that God is not silent. Now let me ask a couple questions of this first. Hopefully ask this alongside of you. Why do we remember? Or rather, what is it that we are trying to remember? We're told here, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules. In essence, we are called to remember what God requires, how we have failed to fulfill that, and subsequently what we needed to be fulfilled for us. How Christ has fulfilled that for us. And how we are to live in response. We are to remember what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. These are the very basic facets of God's word. We are to remember. And why are we to remember? You know, this word is so important. The language here in verse 4 is actually, a lot of it's drawn from the book of Deuteronomy. When God initially laid down the conditions of the covenant. Why are we to remember? One, God wouldn't need to say it if we actually did it. He says this because we fail to do it. He says it over and over again. Remember, because by the way, the days feel silent. And this is how you cling hold to the grace of God. You remember. But why do you remember? It's not merely that the days feel awfully silent sometimes. That God feels silent. And so we're called to remember. We also remember, because frankly, uh, there are times we need to shut up. There are times we just need to let God speak to us through his word and shut our own mouths. Again, something my own counselors have called me on. Shut up and let God speak. Sometimes we are so eager to explain the truths of God, to explain his providences, that we are actually not experiencing his goodness in those providences. We're too busy explaining them and opening our big mouths. How do we remember? Well, we often... What we need to do, really, is to slow our own, our own tongues, to be quiet and let God speak. He's not silent. The reason we can't often hear him is not because he's too quiet. It's because we're too loud. And how do we do that, then? How do we remember the law of God? How do we remember his word in days in which God seems incredibly silent, in which we have so many noisy distractions all around us to keep us busy and occupied, unthinking and unfeeling. How do we remember God and hear his word when we are so busy speaking and talking because we're uncomfortable with the silence? You know, as I heard it wisely put by a pastor recently. 
the way we remember God is in a sense several fold. It's not merely going to church on Sunday morning and hearing God's word and opening your dusty Bibles on occasion and reading God's word. These are God's appointed means of grace. But we need to go a step beyond that. We not only need to hear God's word, we need to meditate upon it. You know that language from scripture? Joshua 1, for example. Meditate on his word day and night that you might not sin against him. We need to slow down. We need to be quiet. And we need to meditate in silence upon God's word. And this wise pastor recently said, guess what? And when you do that, guess what normally comes out of that? Prayer. I actually did an experiment with this myself recently. Taking God's word, a passage of it, and wrestling with it. And since arguing with God about it, because I've been convicted, I, I know the truths. I don't actually trust a lot of these truths. And saying, oh, you were there, God. Re- really, where were you? And just being honest and open in my reflections, journaling before God and meditating upon his word. And pretty quickly, it turned into prayer. And I was, in a sense, having it out with my God. And all of a sudden, I was reminded, my God is not silent. I accused him of being silent. And then I opened his word and actually stopped to listen to it rather than trying to fill it with my own noise. And all of a sudden, I hear my voice of God crying out to me in the darkness. And my heart echoes back. That's the how. We remember. We remember. That is how the silence is filled in the present day. And as we remember, God gives us a precious image, like the one we have here of this rising sun, this coming day, when faith will be made sight. And in a sense, he gives us a peek through the stable door in the last battle of Narnia and shows us what's, what awaits it's amazing. If you love this imagery of the, do- of the calf leaping out of the stall, for me it kind of reminds me of Aslan saying, go higher, go further to all those within his land. The inexpressible joy of dwelling in God's presence. Brothers and sisters, God is not silent. This message won't be meaningful to you if you recognize that you do struggle with his silence. Don't just try to explain away his silence, his seeming silence. Don't say, well, Romans 8.28, God has a purpose for the good of those who love him. Before you get to that point, instead of trying to defend God or explain him away, interact with him. Interact with your God and take those hidden struggles with his silence before him. And let him attend to you with his word. Is that not why we come here week after week? Sometimes we don't want to come to church. Let's be honest. We come because we want to hear from our God. Whether we really want it or not, we know we need to hear him. We need to hear from him. God is not silent. And the only way we're going to recognize that is if we slow down. We stop talking. We let him come to us on his own terms. And recognize how Christ has turned that son of judgment into a son of righteousness. We do not fear the fire, we cherish it. And in these great days of darkness, we cherish the Savior, who we know even now is working within us to God's good pleasure 
and one day we'll set everything out right. Wipe every tear from our eyes. And in a sense say, now go further up, further in. Our hearts leap in part now, even amongst the darkness. Imagine how full our hearts will be on that great and glorious day. That coming day. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that we deserve your decree of utter destruction. This word in the Hebrew, which means harem, that connotes holy war, that connotes damnation. These final words of the Old Testament are what every sinner on this earth deserves. And yet, Lord, on that great and horrible day when Christ hung upon that cross, you declared holy war against your own son, and poured your wrath and judgment, not upon us, the sinners that deserved it, but upon your Savior. No wonder he recoiled at the thought of it. And yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. He bore that holy war that we might have peace. He turned his face like flint toward that cross that our hearts might be turned anew toward you. We so often lose sight of that great and glorious picture. We lose sight of the throne of grace where our king now reigns above us that we can approach boldly and confidently in prayer. We lose sight of the great coming day when the sun of righteousness will rise, our every sin will be purged away. We no longer have to struggle with the inner war of our own hearts. Lord, we know it is hard to keep these images before our hearts. We confess, if we are honest, that we struggle with your seeming silence. Help us, Lord, to remember your word. Help us to ingest it. Help us to meditate upon it. And to turn out these precious truths of which you speak into our hearts by your word of power. Turn them out into prayer before you. To honestly wrestle with you in the darkness of night and in the light of the day. That we might hear from our God. Find peace and rest for our souls. All the more as we see that day approaching. That day when the Trump will resound. The clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. That day when faith will become sight and every tear right from our eyes. Now we live in the darkness. But yet a great late light has come to us in that darkness. We cherish the day when God himself, when you yourself, will be that light. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Feed us, strengthen us. Guide us, O King Eternal. Guide us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Anchor our hearts to your very love. And help us, Lord. Help us to cling to your voice in the dark of the night. And to remember that our God is not silent. That he has declared it is finished. And help us to rest in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.